Throughout the 20th century, we have suffered the illusion that technology can make war humane. Artillery and chemical weapons, air power and nuclear bombs, precision strikes and remote control drones have all been presented as technical solutions to the problem of war. They would offer a decisive lead on the battlefield that would end wars quickly, or they would allow for surgical strikes which would eliminate enemies and destroy military infrastructure while leaving civilians unharmed. The reverse is true. Rather than ending war, these innovations have allowed states to inflict unsurpassed horror on cities and to wage terror campaigns upon civilians. In Guernica, London, Dresden, Stalingrad and Rotterdam. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Vietnam and Cambodia. In Beirut, Hama, Sarajevo, Grozny, Aleppo and Mariupol. States rain terror upon their own civilians and those of their opponents, killing masses in an instant, turning homes into rubble and leaving millions displaced. The spectre of technologically enabled humane war has haunted the Middle East for a hundred years. Bombing was first used against civilians and lightly armoured insurgents in the broader region by British forces in 1919. Modern Syria has most recently suffered under this technology of war for more than a decade. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. Almost two million people have been injured. Millions more have been driven from their homes, often into overseas exile. More than 135,000 buildings have been destroyed. Today, the country's pre-conflict leader, Bashar al-Assad, is still in place and controls much of the country and looks likely to be re-accepted by his neighbours. Regional rivals who have supported different armed groups have begun a process of diplomatic normalisation, and the bombers that wrought much of the terror have been redeployed to new wars. The conflict has not so much ended as it has been frozen. Around a third of the country is not under the central government's control. Instead, a range of opposition groups, each backed by different foreign powers, hold a patchwork of territories. These are home to millions of people, including pre-war locals and the internally displaced. But amid all of this carnage and chaos, engineers and NGOs are taking a different approach to the use of technology in conflict. Rather than developing new ways of making war, they are finding new ways to build peace. The work they are doing is helping to establish a bedrock for civil society and could allow millions to start rebuilding their lives and it could help close a loop in the circular economy, eliminating the carbon costs of residential construction. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. Today, we're talking to two researchers about their work on ways to take the rubble of conflict and use it to build new homes for those left unhoused or in exile. And we'll learn how an organisation with its roots in the response to the horrors of 1930s Europe is now helping to develop academic communities in countries affected by two of the 21st century's most destructive wars. 
in a moment will tell the story of their research and how it could be used around the world, both in places of conflict and in the general construction industry. But this episode isn't, like many, just an opportunity to learn. Many of our listeners may be able to contribute to the work that our interviewees are doing. Those in the research community can support the work of their Syrian counterparts through collaboration. Those in business may be able to join this collaboration, offering expertise and practical support to help their academics turn their ideas into reality. And we hope someone out there in the audience may be able to help CARA, the Council for At-Risk Academics, with a very specific request. We have been looking for somebody who would donate a total station. They cost a fortune. We are trying to get one donated because one of the things that became apparent after the earthquake is there was no expertise. There was not that disciplined knowledge around seismic movements, earthquakes. That's Kate Robertson. Kate is a consultant who has worked with CARA, the Council for At-Risk Academics, to develop country programmes in Iraq and now in Syria. Kate spoke to the podcast in a personal capacity, not on behalf of her organisation. We'll learn more about how the organisation has helped individual academics later in the episode, and at the new approach it is taking, which sees it offering broader support at a country level to allow academics to work together and with the international research community safely. But first, let's go back to the beginning. In history, that's always a hard thing to do. Every beginning has its own beginnings. We could start with the gradual decline of the Ottoman Empire or the half-hearted and self-interested attempts by France and Britain to establish new nations in its territories in the wake of the First World War. Or to the governor's office in Sidi Bouzid, Tunisia in 2011, with street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi despairing at the latest incident of petty bullying in a lifetime of bureaucratic oppression, set himself on fire and sparked a range of uprisings that shook North Africa and the Middle East. As that wave of popular uprisings broke across the region, Abdul Qadar Rishwani was completing his PhD in chemical engineering at Aleppo University. Over the next two years, Syrians continued to protest their country's leadership and were met with increasingly brutal repression, including the use of chemical weapons. In 2013, Abdel Qadir needed to leave the country. He crossed the northern border to Turkey and worked at Gaziantep University. After I fled to Turkey, I communicated with my friends there uh, and they advised me to attend for Kara organization because they helped uh, and Syrian academic under uh, risk. So I contact with them, send an email, then uh, they applied me in this project. After that, there are many strands in uh, CARA structure. First of all, related to tutors, they put a tutors uh, face uh, one-to-one person, uh, then turn to workshop in Istanbul uh, for uh, academic writing in English. The third step is announcing some grants. Here, uh, I uh, uh, register for this one uh, of these uh, proposals and one of condition to have a supervisor uh, from international academic person. So I 
looking for who is interested in cement and concrete research, then I found Sheffield teams and I uh, communicate with them. Kara's country programme for Syria helps academics like Abdul Qadar to develop ideas and collaborate with foreign institutions. The Syria programme has five strands, for want of a better word, five different types of activity that individually and collectively respond to the overall aim. And as I say, research has been a really important vehicle for us to respond to the, the, the programme aims. We did a first call in 2018, and that was literally what it was. We put out a research call, and it was very widely spread amongst the network universities, the current network universities, as well as amongst the um, the Syrians with requests that they pass it on to others, because we've been gradually building up the numbers of Syrians as well. And that was how how we ended up getting a proposal through um, from our Syrian colleagues. And then we went knocking on doors. And Professor John Provis, who is has <laughs> reminded me when I was made some rude comment about their interest being in cement. He told me he was a professor of cement, but he forgave me, forgave me that and um, was just, you know, brilliant in his willingness to engage. As well as supporting Abdel Qadir and his fellow Syrian academic, Bakrai Kadan, Provis was also able to introduce Kara to Chala Meral Akgul, Associate Professor at Metu, the Middle East Technical University in Ankara, who offered practical help and equipment for their research. Theodore Hanin is a member of the department at Sheffield, whose academic focus has been on concrete and cement. That's where it all started and arranged the first project, which involved a visit for Kara to, to Sheffield, sorry, for Abdul Qadr and Bakri to Sheffield as well. So they, they, they were here in 2018, I think. They, they came for a research visit and then we also, um, at that point, John knew someone at METU, so the Middle Eastern Technical University, and we thought, you know, for the materials characterization, they, we can send samples here because we were using real construction rubber and, you know, small amounts is fine. But for the coarser stuff, for the, you know, for the bigger tests, we do them in Turkey, which is closer. Um, just geographically, basically. Um, and it's easier to transport, you know, heavy materials. Together, the Syrian and Sheffield researchers decided on a research topic. When we had that meeting, we uh, we were discussing... So first of all, it was, you know, uh, cement and concrete. Is, is, you know, we, we were going to do something in that area. And yeah, it, it just came, it came uh, naturally, uh, you know, when we were trying to decide the project, I think, I think I was like, well, there's rubble everywhere, let's do something with the rubble. And we started with a lot of different ideas. After our discussions, uh, we find uh, this uh, issue in north of Syria. Uh, there are a, a lot of debris. And we discuss how can we turn this uh, unuseful material to useful material. This focus chimed with Theo, who has been working to develop low-carbon ways of making concrete. The research, he explains, has global relevance. We look at population and urbanization behavior. Um, I think it's been calculated in the next 10, 20 years, we will have equal amount of construction and demolition. 
And when we have that, that is when we can annihilate the CO2 emissions from um, cement, obviously coupled with green energy. It could be used in any disaster region and it could be used just in anywhere that we have to take down our old buildings because they're no longer operational, basically. There are other ways of, of doing, people are trying to like, you know, extend service life of buildings through several repair methods. But at the end of the day, it's not going to last forever and it needs to come down. The work will contribute to the development of a low or even no carbon construction sector. But Abdul Qadir is also focused on the needs of others who have seen their homes destroyed by bombing. We have a war and there are a war in Sudan, in Yemen, in Ukraine. Month ago, some of colleagues in Ukraine called me and I did a meeting with them and I discuss with them and I give them my advice what the first stage should we do in their conflict and how can we reconstruct Ukraine. First of all, we got an experience in conflict area. The second issue is how can you deal with this a lot of debris there? This is a main or big issue in, in general, uh, reusing debris is known in all the world. But uh, during the conflict, you know, some urgent situation happened uh, in many cases. So you need to respond quickly with this situation. If we think about these small bindings from these uh, materials, he, this is a benefit from this project. If we can finalize these uh, stages with our project, we can apply this project in any conflict area in the world. When we use this material inside, so we didn't need to transport or transfer this material to landfill. This is a first benefit from this project. Secondly, we can save the original or virgin material. Also, we need to transport this material from the, main, um, um, uh, the local site to the field site. Also, we need to spend a lot of uh, fuels here. So we, if we can... Uh, reuse this material inside, we can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide. At the same time, when we use this recycled material, also we can save the original or virgin material for the second generation. Uh, you know, 40% uh, uh, of Alibo was destroyed. If we need to re rebuild this material, so we need a lot and a lot of this material. So if we can reuse this, we can have sustainable things for the other generation. The researchers had a clear vision for what their work could do. But first they had to plan their research and the practical work that would be needed in a region that is still struggling with conflict and a lack of effective government. We uh, stayed together in Istanbul in one workshop. Uh, Kara uh, put uh, us together in this workshop and we put a structure for this uh, project so the first uh, uh, step was to collect the samples from many sites in north of, north of West Syria. Then we need to classify this material. Is it suitable or not to be as uh, aggregate for a new concrete? There was a risk that the munitions used against civilians in Syria may have contained radioactive materials. The debris was tested in the field and shown to be safe to collect. Yes, we collect this sample. 
and we uh, traveled to UK with small amount of sea samples and I conducted a lot of mineralogical tests in uh, Sheffield uh, uh, University in science and materials uh, engineering department. As well as his work on this paper, Abd al-Qadir has been helping to set up a new university in northwest Syria, a region outside of the Assad regime's control. We are uh, a new uh, university. We didn't have a lot of equipment or suitable equipment to do all the, these tests. Also, and we need uh, a qualified labs for uh, the certificate of the results. There are two kinds of tests. The first of all, related to mineralogical tests we conducted in UK. There are other uh, uh, experimental uh, related to uh, physical and mechanical tests. And here we need tons of uh, samples. So we collect all these samples, transport them to Turkey. And by car we went to uh, Ankara. There are a third, third university collect together. Sham University, Sheffield, and uh, Middle East of Technology. There are a professor there, Chagla Akul, helped us uh, in this project. She opened here labs uh, there, and we conduct a lot of experiment, experiment there. The idea was to show that the material could be used in local rebuilding projects in Syria. So the first intention, I think, was to give people the confidence to reuse it, right? Even though if you've used construction and demolition waste before, you know, every country has different codes, has different, you know, methods. So it was, it was important to have a study which was done properly um, using standards. We used ASTM standards because that was, so the American standards, I think, and because that's what they were using in Metu in Turkey at the time. But there are already tests, defined tests that need to be done to, you know, for your concrete before you can use it for anything. We thought, okay, we know what the material is. Now let's try replacing the coarse aggregate, you know, 25%, 50%, 75%, 100%, percent—I think it was, um, and see how much we can replace without having any influence at all. And then 50% we saw we could could be replaced, you know, without without any significant changes. Obviously, you could replace 100% and, and we still showed what the performance was. And sometimes you don't need to meet certain performance for certain things, especially if you're building, you know, um, one floor, single floor housing and things like that. If we crush this gypris and turn it to aggregate, we can replace the new concrete by this material up to 50% and we can save the same properties from the new concrete. The team showed with this first paper that they could replace one component of concrete, the aggregate. But could they go further and replace the binder that holds it together? The team thought they might be able to. A lot of their cement is ex uh, imported. Uh, from Turkey, so we are trying to remake cement from local materials because that's what glues everything together. Because at the moment this was only the aggregate, the coarse aggregate that we that we replaced. Um, so obviously they would still need money to buy the binder or resources to get binders. For the binder, there are 
several things we could do. We could uh, either try and make a local supplementary cementitious material, which is basically what it means is we'll buy cement, but only use half of it and replace half of it with something that is supplementary but cementitious. So um, a calcined clay or some industrial byproducts or um, something that has reactivity. So this is something that's done. They're blended cements. You know, you, you don't have to make it all with clinker. So, so one of the possibilities is that we're looking at is to, yeah, just find clay deposits that are next to the area and see if, if they have reactivity, if you calcine them at like seven, eight hundred, nine hundred degrees. And then that way, you know, you can do it locally and then you can all of a sudden replace half of your cement needed so that that, that reduces the cost by half. And another way is from the recycled concrete aggregate. So when we crushed it, there is less than five and greater than five millimeter. The less than five millimeter now contains your fine aggregate, which is usually sand, and all that hardened cement paste, all the cement that was there in the first place. Now, it's not very easy to separate these two. A lot of work is going on into it right now, and there's a few startups as well. But if we can separate the cement paste from the sand, sand is also becoming um, scarce, by the way. So um, people want to get their sand back. So if we can separate the cement paste from the sand, we could just refire that cement paste back into a reactive clinker. So basically, take the water out of it, mix it back with water again, and it becomes a cement again. Abdul Qadar is currently working on how to perform this second round of research. He's been helped in this through collaboration with industry. Indeed, this may be one part of his work that listeners may be able to suggest tools and techniques that he could use. The first of uh, first things we should do, to do is to classify this material to two scales. The first one uh, up of 50 millimeters, uh, the second down of 55 millimeters. So up of 5 millimeters, we use it in the first project. We use it as a replacement of uh, aggregate of concrete. The down of 5 millimeters, now we working in the second project and uh, we use it in LC3 cement. This is a low carbon uh, cement type. Months ago, uh, I contacted with some NGOs and some local council and make uh, decision maker to turn this project to be applied. How can we do it that to uh, build a small scale of buildings? Uh, you know, there are uh, millions of IDBs internally displaced people here in Northwest Syria. So we need a ready maybe uh, building and quick buildings. So uh, now we're thinking to build this, this kind of buildings with this, from this material. If we can uh, succeed in this uh, stage, I guess uh, this project will be uh, cover all the uh, demands for the uh, needs of people in North of Syria to reconstruct in the second stage. I'm looking at, uh, I conducted some uh, searches about companies in, around the world and I found uh, they have a good experience in this crusher. You know, we need a stationary uh, factory 
and this uh, factory need to put in one place and collect all the uh, debris there. So I contact with these people and they have a good experience about this uh, issue. And they advised me to start with some crusher, put this crusher in the fields and re reuse it, this debris. After that, uh, in the high levels, or maybe if the government thinking about this issue, we can establish a big uh, factory. We can collect all the debris and classify all this debris and make it useful in many sectors, not in concrete, maybe in steel, in glasses, in the plastic, uh, and so on and so Abdul Qadir's work with Theo, Bakri, Chala and the rest of the team will contribute to the development of a low-carbon concrete industry around the world. They all hope it will help Syrians rebuild their homes in a low-cost way that is not dependent on foreign help or the central government. But with the support of Kara and Kate, he is also keen to help young Syrians rebuild their lives. A child who was eight or nine years old when the conflict broke out will now be of an age when they would have been preparing to go to university. We can all remember being 18 years old. Many of us will have children of that age or will have brought children up and seen them start their lives at university. It's often a challenging time. The world can be welcoming to refugees, but we often apply the same criteria used on lifeboats. Women and children are prioritized. Young adults and young men in particular are made to feel less welcome, and sometimes even viewed as a threat. For an 18-year-old man, barely more than a child, who can remember only war, and who has seen only militia leaders able to offer protection or employment, taking up arms may seem like the best available option. The other option is to leave, but for those families lucky enough to find a route to somewhere safe, to a place that offers opportunity and ways to contribute to society, it can become hard for younger generations to return. Kate saw this in Iraq, where she led the development of Kara's first country programme. If you look at, the, at Iraq, you know, when Saddam Hussein um, attacked the north and there was a mass outflow of refugees, nevertheless, when peace, I don't think peace has ever returned to Iraq, but when some normality returned to Iraq, a lot of those in exile did return after many years, although ironically, not ironically, understandably probably, you know, their children didn't, their children yeah. stayed in America or wherever they had been brought up. It was the previous generation of, of academics that returned. It doesn't give you continuity. The role of the universities in helping to rebuild society, in training the next generation, is incredibly important. To help give these young people the chance to have a rewarding life and to allow them to contribute to their communities, Abdel Qadir has been working with other Syrians in the Northwest to develop an autonomous university. The institution they've developed, with the support of Turkish NGO IHH, is called Sham University, named for the Syrian word for the region. There are some universities like Sham University in northwest Syria, and not uh, also not recognized from out of Syria, but uh, it helped uh, at least to collect these uh, youth people to return to their uh, fields. You know, the youth we we need to prepare them for the next stages to reconstruct Syria. So uh, Sham University, Alibo University, other university play a good role here to graduate uh, skilled uh, 
and maybe uh, qualified people for the next stages. For example, Sham University, there are 3,000 of students there uh, teaching, uh, learning. Uh, uh, there are six uh, specialists, uh, engineering, uh, political, uh, economic, education, uh, religious, and we, uh, there are four maybe batches of this student was graduated. One of these batches go to the Turkey and complete their master's degree. So there are a lot of skilled people, students there. We can help them in the uh, second stages there. As well as his own institution, Sham University, Abdul Qadar mentions Aleppo or Free Aleppo University. Like Sham, this is based in the Northwest, outside of the Assad regime's control. These two larger institutions are joined by smaller universities. In 2015, the Syrian interim government and a breakaway group from the Aleppo University established the Free Aleppo University or Aleppo University in the liberated areas as it was originally known. And still is known, I think, by quite a few people. Um, so that was the first, that was in 2015. And then Sham University, which FAO, the Free Aleppo University, has got thousands of students, 12,000 students. And then the others are in the hundreds, so they're not really sort of big players and they are all operating under the authority of the Syrian interim government that licenses them to operate. Local governmental groups, of which there are many, can support universities like this, but it takes a functioning and recognised national government to establish a system for awarding degrees that we recognise around the world. Unfortunately, there is no uh, any international recognition for our government or, or our university all our thing is not recognized, unfortunately, for that. But maybe uh, some uh, NGOs or international NGOs could uh, help in this project. Until now, they didn't do a lot about this because they, especially for humanitarian issue, like basket food or maybe water or, or maybe some uh, cash for work not uh, related to any uh, big issue there in Syria, especially for education. Kate has seen glimmers of hope in how international donors and aid groups view investment in tertiary education. But in a conflict that lasts decades, the short-term emergency aid Abdul Qadar describes simply isn't enough. If you look at tertiary education, it simply hasn't been part of the um, humanitarian response. You know, the World Bank only five, six years ago basically said we were wrong. Tertiary education is fundamental to pluralist societies, democratic pluralist societies. But, you know, that was very recent before it was all primary and secondary. Um, you know, the, the whole continuity within the, the, the education world about, how, you know, how people get trained and therefore, you know, if you don't have tertiary education, then you don't have teachers for primary education. You know, all that, all those connections were certainly not made. UN agencies that never did and never had any involvement in education suddenly were setting up education programs, um, scholarship programs, mainly to try and, I think, mainly driven by uh, attempts to stop youth being radicalized, yeah. give them alternatives 
and um, certainly, you know, Sham's mission is to ensure that there is access to higher education for those who are displaced, internally displaced or local to the area, a lot of refugee camps. Abdel Qadir says that recognition of degrees is important. For some, it will offer a way out. But that's not a path he has chosen for himself. And he hopes that many younger Syrians will also want to stay in the region and contribute to rebuilding their communities. For this, quality assurance is more important than recognition. And it may one day help on the path to being able to award degrees accepted internationally. If any Syrian can thinking to go and flee to and immigrate to other country, it's not a good idea. You know, there are a lot of people need us. So some of these students didn't think about recognition. Some of them, yes, this, this is a right for them. They need recognition for the next stage. But some of them, no, they didn't need any recognition. So Sham University started to establish other of recognition like qualifications of some programs. And so we connect with some UK university and we go, we go to the UK in the last summer with our uh, administration in Sham University there, and we started a quality assurance unit to establish quality assurance units in Sham University. So if our program is qualified, so the recognition may be the second stage, we can solve it in the future. And uh, sorry, and here CARA play a good role, why? Because they make uh, uh, topics or make a groups of Syrian academic to collect together and working together in some topics related to north of Syria. For example, uh, two years ago, uh, there are uh, five topics related to higher education in north of Syria, northwest of Syria. One of these topics related to uh, quality assurance unit in north of Syria. And we published a paper about this in a famous journal. If we continue in this working, maybe in the future, Yes, we can get uh, the recognition easier from now. Abdul Qadar's sense of duty to his fellow Syrians stops him from leaving, but his duty to his family stops him returning. I have four children. How can I go and stay in Norway? I can't. So first of all, I need yes stable regions. After that, I can thinking about this crossboarding every day. I'm crossboarding twice, morning and evening. Two hours and two hours. Uh, I am suffering every day, but this is my duties. This is my job. I cannot find a job here in Turkey, so I'm working in North Syria. Uh, first of all, to save money for my family. The second to help the people there. And there are a lot of academic thinking like me. Uh, at least in Gaziantep, there are 150 Syrian academics stayed with their family. And some of them working in Turkish university, some of them working in Syria. But all of them, when ask them, what do you need? They need to go to their country, stay there and rebuild that. But what the first thing is to stable region. The most, most important thing in this issue is uh, stability of living in north of Syria. There are, there are uh, political and economic issue till now. And the infrastructure is not stable. For example, a lot of Syrian academic live in north uh, south of Turkey, 
and working in north north of west of Syria. Why? Because the infrastructure is not good there. The security is not good. So the most important thing thing is uh, for the security situation and political situation. After that, we can thinking about the next stage is related to job opportunity, opening schools, uh, hospitals, maybe industrial factory. So we need first of all to make this situation stable. After that, everything I get, our I guess we can solve it uh, together with our students, with our colleagues, some NGOs, maybe some friends from other countries. We can help in this issue. The challenge of bringing stability is not one that can be solved by one of our interviewees. It will require international commitment, delicate diplomacy and compromise. But Kara's development of country programs, which Kate led in Iraq and is now as a consultant helping to lead in Syria, can contribute. The country programs are very different from Kara's original role. The council had been set up in 1933 by academics in Britain when Hitler's race laws expelled hundreds from German universities on racial grounds. But in Iraq, at the height of the so-called War of Terror, the NGO saw a new approach was needed. The invasion by the US and UK was in 2003, and yeah. we began looking at the um, Iraq program in 2006. Since 2006, um, the network the CARA UK Universities and Research Institutes network has been uh, grown and is now quite substantial with 135 members. Um, so that the, the uh, core fellowship program is very much run in partnership with those universities. And that is about getting people out to the UK and um, giving them a period of respite, constructive respite in that they're working within a university. Uh, I think around 75% are already already have PhD, PhDs for their postdoc, um, and then there are um, a very few masters who've had their master students who've had their masters interrupted, but fit the CARA definition of an academic because they have actually worked um, and as as paid employees as lecturers or um, or researchers in universities but um, most of the others are PhD students. Again, often interrupted PhDs. So that's that's the sort of ongoing program for CARA. And the country programs are triggered um, as and when there is a, a, a clear targeting of the higher education sector or its educators. Um, and the case of Iraq really did sort of bring CARA back to its origins, is how I usually put it, in that it was very obvious that um, academics were being targeted and killed. Gatherings amongst Iraqis was um, not tolerated. So in a sense, CARA gave them a very clear academic uh, umbrella under which they could meet. It was wary because it had not run programs in country before. It was not sure whether there was a space for CARA to occupy and whether it could actually respond to the needs. So that program was partly bringing people over. And then ironically, um, 
well, bringing people over, working with those who had sought exile primarily in uh, Jordan at the time. That was the main destination. Uh, and then when Iraq stepped back from the brink of full-blown civil war, um, there was um, there was a sense, well, you left, you abandoned us, so we don't want you back. And so then the roles sort of changed to become one of actually re helping to reintegrate um, academics who were on the outside back into um, the Iraqi higher education sector. But it was very, very much trying to understand what role Cara could play. And the main role it could play before it had money was to give voice to those academics who were being ignored. UNESCO Iraq was um, uh, moved to Jordan and um, it became apparent that UNESCO Iraq did not have a mandate for Iraqi academics in Jordan and that um, UNESCO Jordan did not have a mandate for Iraqis. So they really were sort of falling between the two stools. So one of the first things we were able to do was to basically bring them into the fold. The ability to give voice to the needs of academic communities is important, but so too is money. The moral commitment Syrian academics have made to their communities is clear, but there are challenges to the commitment of time they can make. They must dedicate some time to meeting the immediate needs of their families before they can dedicate themselves to their academic work and community's future. You know, the, the, the problems of trying to scrape a living when you're not being paid a decent salary and so you can't commit to one institution, but you have to get two or three jobs just to keep the roof over the head of your family, uh, means that it's very difficult for, for um, an institution to really get the level of commitment that it needs. A lot of those who cross the border to teach do it because they're entirely committed to the future of Syria, to making sure that young Syrians are given the training they need to be the future generation that rebuilds um, Syria. It is absolutely about commitment, but because the salaries and the inflation basically has squeezed them, it's very difficult for them to commit to one institution or one job. So quite a few of them are doing multiple jobs. Northwest Syria's universities aim for autonomy. Sham certainly does, but it was initially entirely funded by one foreign NGO. While it has maintained its autonomy, it and Free Aleppo University are in a very different position from international universities with large endowments or support from national research councils. Tara is trying to do what it can to support a university that is not highly politicised, um, so it doesn't come with those concerns in the middle of a very fragile context, but trying to do its best to deliver quality higher education to, um, to students. Other academic institutions can offer support to this mission by engaging through CARA with their Syrian counterparts. There hasn't been an institutional, a fully institutional engagement at the moment. And that's what we're looking at now is to basically de uh, develop a, a developmental partnership. So it's not about money. It's because, you know, uni universities, UK universities have um, policies around 
community engagement and the universities that are, are functioning internationally, you know, that engagement should extend beyond the UK borders. Individual Syrian academics also needs advice and support. Historically, Syrian universities focused on teaching. There may be practical elements to this choice. In a country with much poverty, skills development is important. But there are more political reasons. Academics skilled in international research can make evidence-backed arguments and organise to challenge authoritarian regimes. They help build a bedrock for civil society. But academics who have been denied the chance to build their research skills need help from their friends around the world. The Syria programme has very much been built around or within a, a research framework because that's what we can offer. We can make the connections, the professional connections. We can support academic development for a group that haven't worked in the international academic arena and don't know the rules necessarily. A group whose role historically has been to teach, not to do research. Uh, and, you know, where they've done their PhDs in a very constrained environment where everything is about description rather than critical analysis. If the universities are brave enough to do it by making public statements as to the benefits, you know, by us partnering up Sham University faculty with what we might call critical friends who, who, who feedback on curriculum development, who provide shadowing opportunities. So it, it's really about how do we build up that visibility and the evidence against internationally recognised quality indicators. That has been part of the role of Theo and his colleagues at Sheffield. Quite simply, academic research is often as much about business management and grant writing as it is about having good ideas. Syrians need the advice of those who have already been able to develop these skills. To be able to, you know, bring them up to that you know, to the to the same kind of level and, and, and recognition, I think they need allies, people to work with them. The collaboration that they've done already, international collaboration is great, but they need more of that. They're getting, you know, they will get that. It's like everyone else, you know, years, years and years of experience. So I think that is, that is an area to fund and to work on is to make them research leaders in their own right develop solutions for their own local, you know, without at some point needing us, you know, that's a, that, that, that would be the, the end goal. And how do you get that is by learning and collaborating with the people who do it best. So continuing to support them to become uh, research uh, leaders, I think is, is very, very important because it's, it's not, it can't happen over a, f a few years, um, it, 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 a, a bit longer than that. Um, especially if, you, if you're talking about getting funding from international communities, right? There are, there are you know, certain levels and certain expectations which are different to that. There isn't much local funding they can get, so it is international funding that they need to get. So yeah, so... Uh, I think, I think they need more support, maybe even infrastructure, so like, uh, you know, equipment, laboratories, uh, accreditations and things like that. And then if they can get accreditations, 
maybe in laboratory accreditations or something, then that could also, you know, help their applications. Academics, scientists and engineers do not just contribute to society through research and teaching. They also support those outside of the academics world by sharing their knowledge. In countries with a stable, recognised government, the state plays an important role in disseminating information. Without a functioning state, someone else must step in. There are other groups who have been formed through the Syria programme that, like the rubble, have been working, have continued to work together. Uh, there's a group based in the Global Academy of Gas, of Agriculture and Food Security up at University of Edinburgh um, that are uh, have been working around food security for quite a while and we put them in contact and initially or initiated that connection and an agricultural group were finally able to incorporate as a Turkish NGO and so University of Edinburgh has been able to continue working with them directly without needing the car umbrella. There's a group in Sussex that have been doing work around again agriculture, Agricultural Voices Syria is what it's called and it's about how do you transfer knowledge to farmers in the north of Syria who have lost the support services that they used to have access to through the regime uh, using uh, podcasts and videos and they've they're still ongoing they're, they're currently doing a, a, a piece of work around water buffaloes that used to be a, a, a very important stock animal and is now um, becoming extinct Providing this level of support can be a challenge. It takes skilled diplomacy, a clear understanding of what is allowed when a country is under international sanctions, and a keen awareness of political realities. Kate and Kara can help Western universities with this. There are quite a few of these projects that were initiated and the connections made through the Syria programme that have gone on to be independent, although the one at Sussex is still keeping us on board because we simplify the bureaucracy that comes with the university. Effectively, we can, we go in as a partner and we uh, contract the Syrians. The recent earthquakes in Turkey and Syria provide another example of how academics can engage with the needs of their communities. They also give a clear reminder that, despite Assad's gradual return to the world stage, the regime has not changed its tactics. It's still a very insecure area. The earthquake has just been, Assad decided to bomb earthquake-affected areas, which I found quite extraordinary. The area that was affected by, in the northwest, that was worst affected by the um, earthquake was then followed up with bombs, bombing. Kara wants to train Syrian academics so that they can study earthquakes and help protect their communities from the harm they cause. But to do this, they need equipment to train on. That's why they are asking for help from our listeners. Let's hear again why they need that total station. We are trying to get one donated for Sham because 
one of the things that became apparent uh, after the earthquake is there was no expertise within, although engineering is one of the dominant um, disciplines that Sham teaches, there was not that discipline knowledge around seismic movements, earthquakes. We have been looking for somebody who would donate a total station. They cost a fortune, so that was always slightly optimistic. But there is one company that has come back sympathetically and is put forward a strategy as to how we might go about raising funds to buy a total station. There are other ways private companies and individual engineers may be able to help. At the end of their paper, Abdul Qadir and Theo have looked at how their research can be made into reality. They want to design a system that allows communities and small local businesses to rebuild without needing to rely on large-scale foreign aid. We're using, without the need of sophisticated machines, using you know, basic equipment, a portable jaw crusher is what they use, some manual separation of the bits that you know don't go in there like the non-concrete bits like wood textiles glass bricks steel reinforcement things like that so those were all removed manually obviously in an ideal world you could remove like the steel with magnets and things or other ways it was thought of in a way that it would give the people their jobs to do when they came back, rather than having a company with sophisticated machines, you know, coming in and swallowing up all the rubble. It's, you know, you wanted the people to be able to have have the rebuilding opportunity and, and technology in their own hands. So if you look at the end of that document, we, we sort of created a very basic flow sheet of, you know, this is what we did, this is what you can do and start rebuilding right now. They have found simple equipment that can separate debris into the larger pieces needed to aggregate and smaller particles, which they can reactivate for use as binder. Perhaps someone out there has ideas for how they can develop low-cost, sustainable ways to build mobile equipment to perform this work and modular facilities that can be used over longer periods to handle larger quantities of rubble. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the man who supports us in our engagement with our community is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.